Good evening and welcome. Um, I'm going to moderate this evening's conversation. Uh, my name is Charles Goodhart, and I've been here at LSE, in the Economics Department, and then the Financial Markets Group for so long that British Heritage have just accorded me as a Grade 2 monument. <laughs> Fortun one. Fortunately, my guests are rather younger than I am. Immediately on my left is Sir Alan Budd, who was at the London Business School Centre for Economic Forecasting with Jim Ball and Terry Burns. He then went as economist to the Treasury, eventually becoming chief economist. He left after that to become provost of Queen's University of Oxford, Queen's College at Oxford, um, and following that, or towards the end of that, he became the first chairman of the Office of Budget Responsibility, or OBR, and has been chair of many other uh, important commissions. On my far left is Lord King, who here, of course, is best known for having been Professor of Economics in the 1980s. Uh, he then temporarily left us uh, for a bank at the other end of town, where I understand he took up a rather senior role. However, he has now come back uh, to do his uh, natural life's work. Uh, he has asked me to give a disclaimer uh, to say that in no sense should his words be taken as representative of the views of the Economics Department of LSE. <laughs> now, the way that this evening is going to be organised uh, is we're going to start off with a conversation which I'm going to lead by asking various questions, which I, my colleagues will uh, answer and embroider. And then towards the end of this evening's session, um, we're going to open it up to questions from the floor. Now, the first question that I'm going to give uh, relates to an occasion where Alan and Mervyn we're actually working very closely together. Uh, this was in the uh, middle of the 1990s uh, when Mervyn was chief economist at the bank and Alan was chief economist at the Treasury. And between them, they designed the procedures of the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, which survived for about 18 years, uh, intact and unchanged, and I'm going to ask them whether it differed in any way, these workings, from what they had imagined at the outset. But I'm also going to ask, and I'm going to ask particularly Alan, um, what his views are on the latest Walsh report by Kevin Walsh, which suggested, and the Bank of England has accepted, changes in these procedures, and what he thinks about the changes that have been proposed uh, and how they worked. So, Alan, could I start on this occasion with you? Okay, but I'm going to start with a boast and, and a disclaimer. The boast is I am an undergraduate, uh, a graduate of the LSC, a very important part of my life indeed, and spent many happy hours sitting here listening to lectures. Uh, the most successful economist of my time by far was, of course, Mick Jagger. Um, but uh, uh, he went on to other, other things. The disclaimer is that although this is a conversation on central banking, I don't claim and would not claim to be a central banker. I, I did um, have a very happy time as a member of the Monetary Policy Committee 
Um, but I would never describe myself as a central banker. It was a very happy time in many ways, as you say, Charles, that there was Mervyn at one end of town and myself at the other end of the town, and we devoted our efforts uh, to fighting the forces of darkness, uh, which were to be found in the most surprising places, <laughs> which is the nature of the forces of darkness. <clears throat> but let, let me um, answer your question about the MPC and its record. The, the most significant point of it, I think, is that the MPC was far more successful, certainly for the first ten years, than I had ever expected. Part of the arrangements for the Monetary Policy Committee were, for example, that a letter should be written by the Governor of the Bank of England if uh, inflation departed by, parted by more than 1% from the target. And when the system began, our best estimate was that one of these letters should be written every 15 months or so. And in fact, the first letter was not written for 10 years, which is quite extraordinary that there was this amazing period of successful economic management. And I would explain just um, a lot of this by the system that Mervyn put in place in, in the bank to support the processes of the Monetary Policy Committee and the fact that the committee very, very quickly, because I became a member of it, um, moved to an extremely good way of conducting itself with absolutely open, free and open discussion, neutrally chaired. Um, I think one of the bravest early acts was, in fact, by Charles himself, because he changed his mind. He, he voted with Mervyn and myself and Willem Balter for interest rate increases, and then one month did not vote for an interest rate increase. And I thought that was a very good sign indeed, that one, somebody wasn't pursuing a line of policy just because they'd started on it. And we didn't all laugh and say, ha, ha, look at funny old Charles. He's had to change his mind. It, people accepted that as we went on, we would both differ, which was very, very important, and we would change our mind. Two extremely important principles of a good committee. So I... I really do admire its success. I give an enormous amount of credit to Mervyn um, for that. I think the one, another aspect of its conduct, though, that did surprise me was to do with the, account, the accountability of individual members of the Monetary Policy Committee. When I was thinking about this from the Treasury end of things, and um, particularly of the four external members... And when I was devising this, I did not know that I was going to be one of these external members. I was trying to design a system. I was only asked to become a member by Gordon Brown at the last minute. I thought we would have to think, how do we, we the Treasury, going to know whether to reappoint people at the end of a three-year period? And we would wonder if we could do this on the basis of evaluating their performance. Three years, of course, is not very long. And we thought that part of the process under which we would be able to evaluate members was that they would be open to fairly severe questioning, partly from the Treasury Committee and indeed from the general public and from the press. And that has not happened. And there are various reasons why it hasn't happened, but that is one part of it that has surprised me. Of course, individual members, after the minutes have been published, are free to give speeches, and they do, of course, go to the Treasury Committee. But by and large, they aren't subject to searching scrutiny of their, of their votes. 
And I, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not completely sure, but it did surprise me that there wasn't more um, scrutiny. But so let me stop, stop there and then come back to the Walsh. Or do you want me to go on to Walsh now? I think you might go on. OK, let, let me go on to um, Walsh. And this, I do have to refer to my notes here. But just um, maybe not everybody is uh, aware of the Walsh Review and um, its findings and its proposals and the Bank of England's response to them. Um, this review was really set up in response, I think, primarily to the Treasury Committee's request to see the transcript of Bank of England meetings. Also, did they also ask to see the minutes of the court? So there was this request, and um, the, the response of the Bank of England was to set up a committee. So um, Kevin Walsh, um, uh, Julie Stark produced this uh, review. And um, he made um, two proposals, and I'll just remind people uh, what they were, two significant proposals, a third perhaps less important. And I won't talk about the question of publishing the minutes of the court. That's not something on which I have useful opinions. <laughs> Under the present system, the Monetary Policy Committee meets on two successive days, the Wednesday and the Thursday, the decision on interest rates and quantitative easing is announced at 12 noon on the Thursday, and the minutes which reveal the discussion and how people have voted are produced two weeks later. And um, Kevin Walsh's proposal was that the policy decisions and the reasons for them should be published as soon as practicable after a decision has been announced. He, he argued that the two-week delay was inconvenient. It members, meant that members of the Monetary Policy Committee found it difficult talking about policy because they knew how they voted, but the general public did not. And this could put people into a difficult position. It really meant that they kept quiet for two weeks. Then there's one week about in which they can talk, and then they go into purdah. So there's not much opportunity for open discussion uh, and comment by members of the Monetary Policy Committee. And the Bank of England's response to this proposal is that in future, at the same time, the decision on interest rates will be announced and the minutes will be published. And in months in which there's an inflation report, that will also be published. So they will simultaneously decision minutes and inflation report when it's an inflation report month. Now, if you think about it, you can't do that without changing procedures quite significantly, and the procedures will be changed quite significantly. There will, in fact, be a delay between the time when the Monetary Policy Committee reaches the decision and all these papers are, are presented. But that is how they have um, responded. They, they will all appear simultaneously. Um, the bank's response also suggests that there's going to be an extra meeting uh, thrown in by the... Uh, of the Monetary Policy Committee, instead of having two meetings, it's going to have three. Um, and um, so that's, the, that's the, that policy and the proposal and the response um, to it. Um, there's the second proposal that Kevin Walsh made, which is not so much to do with transparency and all that, was that there should be eight meetings a year rather than the current 12. That is, in fact, laid down by statute, but the Bank of England has agreed to that, that there will when it can get the statutory change, there will only be eight policy 
uh, decisions a year rather than 12. Um, they can have extra meetings if they, if they need them. So those, those are the aspects, of the, I think those are the two significant aspects of the Walsh Report, plus a third, which is the original cause of the review, which is Karen Walsh said that the transcript of what was then day, the day two meeting should be published within five to ten years, so that the meeting should be recorded and then the, the entire discussion, say for the second day, discussed, um, published within five to uh, ten years, and the Bank of England has agreed to publish the transcript after eight years. That is their response to that. I say the matter's confused by, instead of having two days of discussions, having three instead, and it's not quite clear which days this publication is going to refer to. I think probably just the, the third. So that's what it's all about. If I, I'm asked to react uh, to all this, then first I'll start with a bit of transparency, which I was one of those interviewed by Kevin Walsh, that, that you can draw no conclusions from that at all, but that's just a bit of honesty uh, for you. The second is that when there have been debates, and I've been involved in many during my life, about transparency and publication and so on, I have usually erred towards the end of transparency, towards favouring transparency. And that's because of my suspicion that too often secrecy is used to hide uh, bad um, decisions or bad policies. It's used to hide something which not, ought not to be hidden. So my instinct is usually somewhat in favour of transparency. In fact, I don't think that's been the case with the Bank of England at all. I don't think that is a problem, but it pushes me at that end. Kevin Walsh discusses this whole question of transparency and publication at enormous length and publishes all the academic uh, re references um, to that, and I can see that there is a concept of optimal transparency. And what I'm prepared to believe is and accept that the Walsh proposal in terms of um, publishing the, the transcript after eight years is probably a move towards the optimal degree of transparency. That uh, this, It won't affect... It's, it's too long to make people sit there thinking, oh dear, oh dear, this is all going to be published uh, one day. I better be careful what I say. He talks a lot about that sort of problem. If the transparency is too quick, then people get nervous and tend to move to consensus. They'd much rather be with the party, with the group, than say something on their own. And you can understand why that's the case. And so I can see that eight years is a reasonable period to choose. So those are the main parts of the Walsh Report as far as the conduct of the Monetary Policy Committee is concerned. I don't think the publication of the um, transcript is going to make that much difference. That's my own view. The, the um, rapid publication of the minutes and all that, I don't think will change the discussion, but obviously it will change the procedures. Want to add anything about how the MPC working differed from how you would expect it initially, Mervyn? Well, <clears throat> good evening, Charles. Good evening, everyone. It's jolly nice to be back in the old theatre. Yeah. It's almost uh, 18 years since the MPC was set up, so there's a whole generation of people here tonight who grew up not knowing what interest rate policy was like before the MPC. <clears throat> and I think it's worth going back first, not to 1997, but to 1991, was when I joined the bank. And in those days, decisions on interest rates were taken by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, they could happen at any day in the month and at any time of the day. 
So I would be sitting at my desk and a telephone call would come in about 12 noon saying the Chancellor would like a meeting to discuss interest rates after lunch. So you'd scrabble around to find an anecdote or two or a couple of facts, go along to a meeting where the Chancellor had basically already made up his mind. There'd be a desultory conversation. The decision would be taken. Financial markets would not be expecting this. They'd have absolutely no idea. And they certainly wouldn't know what the motive behind the change was, but they would suspect this was not the product of clear economic analysis, but there was some political motive behind it. The most important aspect of the 1997 change was to sweep all that away. Immediately, people stopped thinking that interest rate decisions were motivated by politics, either in terms of the timing or the substance of the decisions. We had been preparing for a committee structure. The, the, the announcement that the bank would be independent certainly came as a surprise to us. On the bank holiday Monday at the beginning of May 1997, uh, I was at home. Eddie George telephoned me and said, come to the bank straight away. I'll meet you there. I'm on my way. I need to discuss something with you. And he had just been told himself that morning by the Chancellor that the bank will be given its independence. Now, there had been a lot of discussion about an advisory committee in this process, so I had thought quite carefully about structures of a committee, size, kind of people, and who should serve on it, and so on. But suddenly it was real, and we were actually had to make the decisions. And the first meeting of the MPC occurred not much more than three and a half to four weeks from our first hearing that we were going to be independent. So we had to work pretty quickly to put in place the processes, and by and large, they have stood the test of time. They haven't really been changed with the pre-MPC meeting and the meeting itself. And the data, the timing of the meetings was chosen to fit the natural cycle of data about the British economy, official data surveys, and so on. We had to do rehearsals. It was a bit like being in the theater, where you're rehearsing one play in the afternoon and doing another one on stage in the evening. So we were actually doing the pre-MPC meetings for real at the same time as on the same day we were rehearsing the actual meetings to take place a week later. Uh, but it all worked, and we did actually have some rehearsals of, uh, of, of voting structure. I remember one occasion when I said, <clears throat> so this is the rehearsal. Uh, so I wrote the script for the rehearsal, and we had three members voting for a low rate, three for an intermediate rate, and three for a high rate. And I said, well, how do we make the decision? That led to some outbursts of disbelief on the part of some of the members of the committee. But we never actually had that situation. Uh, but we would know how to deal with it if it had come up. So much of the process you know, we had expected, we'd thought through and designed. I think what really was new and something that we couldn't easily know what, how to anticipate was the spontaneity of the discussion among the committee. So if all the previous processes were set-piece occasions where even if the governor and his team went along to meet the chancellor and his team, it was very formal. There was no natural across-the-table discussion. As soon as the MPC started, people would say, well, okay, I understand that bit of the argument, but surely that number's unrealistic. What about a different way of thinking about it? And that's what made transcripts actually impossible to make at that stage because the people transcribing the recording couldn't work out who was speaking because everyone was interrupting everyone else. And it was a very spontaneous and natural discussion about the economics and what was going on. And that, I think, was the big success. I think the thing that disappointed me about it <clears throat> was that we didn't find a way through 
the problem of having to make a common forecast. So our decisions on interest rates were individual. I think it would have been practically impossible to expect people to make detailed forecasts on their own, so we tried to come up with the best collective judgment. But that was always the worst part of the process, the forecast round, and trying to work out. And it, what it did, I think, was to mean that we got bogged down by spending far too much time talking about the output of an econometric model rather than talking about some of the deeper, deeper questions. You know, we tried to overcome it. We reformed the process on regular intervals, but that was the one that was the hardest, I think. Um, but at the end of it, what I came away with, and I think this is the great achievement of the Monetary Policy Committee, if you look at the United States and the Federal Reserve, the, the genuinely open conversations that take place are private ones between the chairman and individual members of the FOMC. That's where the business is done. And at the meeting, for which the transcripts are published and made available, people are making set-piece presentations. So you don't actually discover the real debates that went on because they're not in the set-piece presentations except where people make clear they want to and a small number dissent. The tradition of the MPC was that none of us knew at the meeting itself how the vote would come out. And indeed, there were one or two occasions when you couldn't even be certain that the individual member of the committee himself or herself knew which way they were going to vote until the end of their statement and discussion. So it was, I think, a very, very good way of reaching genuinely difficult decisions by engaging everyone in the process, not by encouraging them to play a political role on the committee, trying to be the, the median voter, but by actually saying what they really thought. And I think that's the big success of the process. Yes, and I remember at several occasions there were people, uh, and you were called on randomly as to what you wanted to vote, uh, for what you wanted to vote. And I remember on several occasions certain members of the committee said that they had not made their mind up and wanted to hear other people before they actually did come to vote. I think I did it once myself. And I think that actually what worries me a bit is that if the, uh, the second the decision day is going to be uh, effectively uh, transcribed and all of that, whether people will be forced more or less to come into the meeting with a viewpoint which they won't then be able to change when they hear other people. But however, that's, that's a possibility. Um, I need the, the, the MPC, the central banking, it was the... Age in the 1990s was the great age of central banking, the great moderation. And then, of course, we had the, um, the great financial crash and crisis. And um, I, we didn't really see it coming, at least I didn't. Very few people, I think, did see uh, the housing crisis. And there are lots of things that happen that people don't foresee. And um, we've had a very good example recently. And I wonder... If, if you're being honest, how many in this hall foresaw in June, when oil prices were, I think, 115, that they would reach 50 um, by December? Did anybody? I don't see any hands. <laughs> now, under those circumstances, it's fairly clear that you can get fairly large, unpredictable jumps in economics. 
under those circumstances, the first question that I would have, I'm going to give you a second question about how do you forecast, but the first question is how do you protect the financial system against large unpredictable jumps which suddenly come at you out of the night? Well, I think one thing you do not do is to say we're going to throw lots more resources at improving a forecast process. What you need to do is to accept that things that will happen cannot easily be forecast and don't rest a judgment about how to make a system stable and robust on an ability to forecast. Then you'll really come a cropper. So the question is, since you cannot be entirely certain what kind of things will happen, how do you make a judgment about what policy intervention to make, particularly in terms of the financial system. And I think the principles I would use are, one, to identify parts of the financial system, the failure of which would have systemic consequences, and where the government is almost certain to come under enormous pressure, much of it rightful pressure, to step in and protect that part of the system, and other parts where you feel you can actually allow people to go bust quite happily, For the first set of institutions, it makes a great deal of sense to compel them to hold large, very large amounts of capital because equity is a very natural buffer. And the failure to have enough equity means that you then easily get into a position where people cannot meet their debt commitments, and that's when the question immediately arises, do you step in to bail out the creditors or not? And it's better to try and be in a position where from well in advance, although you cannot anticipate what will happen and you don't try to forecast, you make a system as stable and robust as possible. And I think one of the great weaknesses in the system that we had was that when people started to debate capital requirements, enormous pressure came from the banking system to lower them, to change the risk weights, because nothing had gone wrong for the previous 10 years. And this sort of attempt to fine-tune the calculation of capital requirements and risk weights is bound to lead to disaster because what you need to do is to recognize that something wholly unpredictable could come along. And what you need to do as far as you can is to say, well, which bits of the system are most critical? Let's make those as secure as we can. But it's quite difficult at the moment with the data we have to know which bits really are critical. I, I certainly had no idea about the concentration of credit default swaps held within AIG and going one way. I don't know how much other people knew, but it's very difficult to to know really where the risk is concentrated in the financial system. But then for that sort of... You certainly don't want to assume that every insurance company is doing that sort of activity. And we've seen examples of industrial companies having engaged in activities on the financial front where they've either cornered a market or got themselves into enormous exposures. In those situations, you may just need to be prepared to nationalise an institution and make sure that the people who are running it disappear completely and then turn it round. But you've got to be prepared to do something radical to an institution that's unique in that. But clearly banks and clearinghouses are not unique. I mean, they're, they're very likely to be and very obviously going to be points of the system that will run into difficulty and, and trouble. And those institutions, certainly insofar as they intersect with the payment system, have to be made as robust as possible. Alan, do you want to add? Well, the uh, the only thing I would add, I'd written little notes down, which really had two sentences. One is capital on the um, liability side, which which Mervyn's talked about. The other thing I wrote down was liquidity on the asset side. So 
one, one needs protection on both sides of the balance sheet. You need the, the capital to bear the, uh, the equity to bear the losses. And, and then you, you obviously do need it in case people are having to um, uh, liquidate assets. You need to be, be, make sure that they've got liquid assets. The, tr the trouble with, with that yes. is, I, I mean, I, in principle I agree, but certain assets are liquid one day yeah, and I understand liquid the next. That. I understand that. And the attempt, for example, at Basel to define government bonds as liquid assets and make everyone hold a certain amount of yes. government bonds fell foul of the back, fact that some government bonds were so not only illiquid, yes. but clearly worth a lot less than their face value. And other countries like Australia didn't have enough government bonds because they'd reduced their deficits so much. They just weren't enough of them to satisfy the demand for liquid assets. So I, I do think we may need to rethink some of the lender of last resort role to ensure that banks and other institutions which have assets have them in a form that it's easy to calculate the haircuts that would enable the central bank then to provide liquidity. Because what became apparent in the crisis was there was only one liquid and safe asset, and that was basically central bank money. I'm not sure the British government would entirely agree with you on that. <laughs> but anyhow, I'm, we, the crisis occurred. I know maybe a black swan event. And sometimes I think we've got as many black swans in our financial system as there are in Australia. But what was it? I, it, it was, thank God, fairly temporary. What, what was it that brought it to an end? What was the main, main steps that were taken to resolve it? Well, I think you can see that from September 2007 through to September 2008, the central banks supplied vast amounts of liquidity, and that did not solve the problem. You could see the LIBOR spread uh, go up and go down as sentiment waxed and waned, but liquidity was not going to be the answer. And in the end, it was only the recapitalization of the banks, forcibly across the population of banks, that was going to do the trick. The UK was in the lead. I think the UK and its government deserve some credit for that. But it wasn't as decisive here as it should have been. And the Americans were more decisive. They lagged behind us, but when they did it, they were more decisive. And I would date the end of the banking crisis to the spring of 2009, when the Americans announced the results of the stress tests of their banks and the capital that all the banks had agreed that they would have to, or they were told what they would have to find either themselves through the market or accept, if necessary, from the U.S. government. And that, I think, ended the banking crisis, but it certainly didn't end the economic crisis because that's still with us. Alan? No, I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. The, I'm the, I'm the, the great success of the American stress test was because if the banks couldn't find or wouldn't find the capital, the government had it ready in the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the TARP program. But that was never available in Europe. And should there have been some mechanism whereby there were funds available to recapitalize banks? Well, there were funds available, it's just government debt. I mean, it was that, that, that's what happened here, essentially. That, that could be done quite readily. Of course, the problem in Europe was that the scale of the recapitalization relative to the size of the economy had to be much larger because the banking system was bigger. And that's what created more of a problem. But it could have been done, but it did require people to be decisive. And I think the strength of the U.S. approach was that banks couldn't opt out 
they were all part of it. The trouble with other parts of Europe, and to some extent here, was that individual banks could opt out of this. And that's what made it more difficult. That's why we had to have a second go in 2009. But the Americans insisted that everyone was in it. You've already expressed a degree of skepticism about forecasting and models. Um, but you, you were in the forefront of trying to take sort of people's attention away from point estimates. And you were the man who was really responsible for the fan charts. Now, the, in a way, the problem with the fan charts were that in sort of stable, normal times, you know, from 97 up to 2007, you will remember that Ken Wallace, who, was, who ran sort of the, the institute who looked at forecasting, criticized the bank because the outcome was always well within the sort of fan chart limits and said the fan chart limits are far too large. And then, of course, you get the great financial crisis. You have these jumps and whatever. And, of course, the outcomes went way outside the fan charts. And how, do you, how does one adjust for the fact that the volatility, the, the, the extent to which the forecasts are likely to deviate from what you think is itself a function of changing con conditions? Well, first, a lot of other people in the bank also played a role in developing the fan charts. But I disagreed with Ken Wallace at the time when he was making his comments, and I did it precisely because he used a short window to say, but in the last five to ten years, the outturns have been well within the fan charts. And the point that we made in response is, one day something unusual will happen, and you will see that actually the uh, ranges we've used make a lot more sense. So I, I think that the fan charts covered 95% of the distribution, there was bound to be once every, one year out of every 20 years when we would expect uh, events outside the, the fan but, charts. But when conditions are volatile, and the fan charts really go all over the place, I, mean, I would hesitate to do a fan chart for oil prices for the end of 2016. Well, it depends, I mean, I, I'm not, forecasting is interpreted by most people, and certainly the Treasury Committee, when we appear before them, to be the forecast was wrong. Now, the outturn was 2.8%, and your central uh, forecast was, say, 2.4%. And that's why we refused to give central forecasts, because we said, no, it's about probabilities. You should really think about what are the odds. You know, is, it, is the chances of the oil price being above or below $75 a year from now? What do you think? Is it bigger than 50% or not? Now, for some of these events, it may be the case that you feel you know enough to form a judgment about the probabilities. For others, you may simply have absolutely no idea. And if you have no idea, then you shouldn't pretend that you do. But it does mean that you can't use quantitative approaches to making decisions. You need to switch to a different method of making decisions about policy. That's tricky. And uh, I don't think we'd have got a consensus around the table on the MPC to abandon the idea that we should simply give up the approach of making some attempt at a quantitative assessment. But it can't be done in terms of a single point forecast. You prefer, you stick with your inflation fan charts rather than scenario methods, for example. And the oil companies, I believe, like Shell, use scenarios rather than uh, probabilistic forecasts. So 
I would like to ask them now why they think the oil price has fallen so far and whether that was one of the scenarios that, in fact, they were using. My guess is that, actually, ex post, you will rationalise what happened. But there are almost an infinite number of scenarios. Who would have predicted, for example, two or three years ago, the creation and the impact of ISIS on oil supplies in Iraq? Who would have predicted five, ten years ago the scale of U.S. production uh, through shale gas? Uh, I don't think the scenarios that really matter are necessarily ones that you can easily envisage in advance. And if you can't imagine them in advance, then you certainly can't do scenarios. Well, isn't a stress test in itself a scenario? A stress test is one way of doing it, and I don't think that you should rely on simply one or two scenarios. You need to keep changing them. But the the main benefit of of a stress test in the banking system is in large part to discover which banks are particularly exposed to certain things. I mean, you could certainly do a scenario in terms of uh, developments in the euro area or developments in, in oil prices... But the question is, what do you do with it unless you have some feel for whether it's likely to materialise or not? Helen. Mervyn gave an answer to the earlier question about forecasting and emphasised that the challenge here is not to forecasting, because that's almost impossible to meet for reasons we're familiar with, but to policy design, that the importance of the fact that forecasts go wrong is to recognise that this this will happen and to have the robustness of institutions, we've just been talking about that, and the robustness of policy design so that uh, the the economy will continue to survive if need be or thrive better still within within the range of possibilities. I I remember I I used to hear a lot about um, scenarios, indeed from Shell, um, in the past when, when I was being a more conventional forecaster, And I was never able to grasp what Shell did with these scenarios other than give lectures about scenarios. Maybe that's being being unfair, and I hope I can be corrected. And it certainly was um, something they were very keen on, but I could never see how it worked out um, operationally. And Mervyn has tried and tried, I've tried and tried, everybody has tried and tried to make people understand the uncertainty attached to forecasts and more or less refusal to give point forecasts. It gets nowhere. It is still headline news if a GDP forecast is revised from something like 2.4% to 2.2%. That is worthy of a headline. It is not worthy of a headline. It is all just another little random number uh, coming out of a process. Uh, Andrew Dillnot has a rather good chart that he uses which actually shows the level of GDP year after year in the United Kingdom. That's a rather flat old thing. You can hardly see it moving. And that's the important point about the United Kingdom, is GDP is roughly the same year after year after year. And that's certainly the way to think about um, GDP forecasts. But uh, the the challenge is is the policy and institutional design. I think, actually, that you meant the change in GDP is roughly the same year after year. Well, no, but no, if the GDP is very, very big. And, and so it, it turns upwards, yeah, it's very, very big. It doesn't change much from year to year. Well, the trend upwards has been less in recent years <laughs> than in yes. previous years. And one of the issues that I think is, is, 
very interesting is that uh, the recovery from the great financial crisis has been relatively slow, despite the enormous <coughs> amount uh, of money and effort that central banks have undertaken to try and bring about that recovery. And we've had this massive increase in uh, central bank balance sheets, in base money, and so on. And yet the concern at the moment is deflation rather than inflation. I mean, if you had asked me five years ago, can a central bank create more inflation? I think I would have said undoubtedly, you know, that, what could be simpler? And yet it seems to be rather difficult. Why? Why, is, why are central banks having difficulty in stopping the deflationary process? Alan. All right. Well, I, I do take this as, a, as a, um, a question primarily about demand, though there's clearly, from something you said earlier, there's also a supply-side question here. So we're really asking why is it that this um, monetary injection has not um, made the uh, demand grow faster with what we would normally expect to be the consequences sooner or later of, um, of higher inflation. And my, I would primarily see this as a demand question rather than a supply question, though we do have to answer this supply question. And it is because, in my view, the um, efforts of central bankers to get, to get the growth of nominal GDP rising faster has encountered these very, very strong headwinds. That's the language that's used. It's perfectly reasonable language. And the main source of these headwinds has been the attempt, and I emphasize attempt, by the public and private sectors to reduce their indebtedness, either the stock of indebtedness or the rate at which it's increasing. And, of course, we know... Again, sitting here in the, in the audience more than 50 years ago when I first learned about the paradox of thrift and then ran around telling all my friends about this wonderfully exciting idea that the attempt to save more might end up in actually people saving less because of its consequences for aggregate demand and output. And I do think that has been a very, very important part of this story. It's been added to more recently, as you've mentioned, by the fall in the oil price, which again is a combination of a supply-side story because of uh, shale oil and so on, and a demand-side story because of the continued weak growth of demand. So we've seen economies growing less rapidly than was hoped or intended, and it's this that's kept um, inflation low. Um, whether we, as I think it's a separate question, whether deflation is reaching the point at which it is a cause rather than a consequence of the slow growth of demand. My own feeling is it hasn't yet reached that, that point, the point at which people are postponing spending decisions because they believe that prices are going to fall, but I can see the risk of um, falling into that. But actually the story hasn't been the same everywhere. Um, I, I think one would generally recognise the quantitative easing um, has worked reasonably well in the United States and here, has got the economies growing. And we know that in those two economies, um, the central bank is approaching the point at which we'll start to tighten policy in order to avoid the consequences, not of deflation, but of inflation. People start worrying about the possibility of prices rising. So those are two economies in which um, there has been 
are a response, perhaps not as much as people had hoped. Um, Japan, um, a later attempt, and uh, so far a mixed response. And, of course, people are expecting that on Thursday the um, European Central Bank will announce quantitative easing and hoping that it will succeed. So that's a, an area where, where, although there was an enormous um, injection set of the enormous expansion of the central bank balance sheet earlier, as you were explaining to me earlier, that has fallen from its peak um, because under the system that the ECB was using, it could not really control um, its balance sheet. If it goes in for quantitative easing, it will um, be able to do so, and we assume it will expand its balance sheet, and that will increase uh, the growth of nominal demand. You were saying that the headwinds were caused by people and firms and institutions trying to delever. Now, the recent Geneva report is entitled Deleveraging What Deleveraging? and points out that debt ratios for most sectors in most countries of the world are not going down. If anything, they're still going up after all this rather slow recovery. So that raises the sort of question in my mind, and is the world drowning in debt? And if the world is drowning in debt, and we've got just far too much debt, and the attempt to get rid of it doesn't work because it simply reduces demand, what do we do? And Mervyn, can I turn to you? As it's on the way today, I did talk about the attempt to reduce uh, oh, right. debt. Yes. yes. So let me, let me go back and try and take this question together with the one that Alan answered. It's a very important question because... Most steep downturns are usually followed by a fairly rapid recovery. Steeper the downturn, the more rapid the recovery. You get back on the previous growth track. Not this time. So why is that? Well, I don't think it's, the story comes from the supply side. There are clearly demographic factors around, but they're very different from one country to another. And I think that in a world in which there has been as much scientific discovery and innovation as I can ever recall, the idea that the underlying rate of technical progress has come to an end, I do not find remotely credible. So I think we do need to look at the demand side. And I think some of the models that people use, intellectual models, may be somewhat weak in this respect. I don't think debt is a causal factor. I think it's a symptom of the problems. What we've been through is a period, almost 20 years now, in which long-term real interest rates have been falling and falling and falling. And when that happens, asset prices rise. That's not a bubble in terms of asset prices. You may think it's a bubble in terms of real interest rates, but asset prices are behaving perfectly appropriately given what has happened to the discount rate. And when you get those asset prices rising, it's not surprising that debt levels go up. So you remember we talked on the MPC a lot about what was happening to the housing market, what was happening to household debt, and we concluded that if long-term rates were lower and going to stay low, that was the market's expectation then. It's even more the market's expectation today. Then the rise in house prices was a per perfectly understandable market response to that, and that the younger generation buying housing from the older generation would have to take out more debt than their parents did to buy the housing stock, but their parents would have larger financial assets when they sold the housing stock 
and transferred it to the younger generation. So what you would see is an increase in both debt and financial assets, and that's exactly what we saw. The deeper problem, I think, is not that. The deeper problem is there is a limit to how long you can go on cutting the interest rate because the impact of that in policy terms is to try and persuade people to spend today rather than in the future. And you can do that for a while, and then the future becomes today. And you've dug a hole in that spending by having cut rates before, and you have to do it again in order to bring spending from the new future to today. And the more you do that, the more you end up in a position where people are deeply unwilling to jeopardize their future levels of spending by borrowing and spending even more today, despite the incentives which are being given by the authorities and the central bank. Firms thinking of investing know that consumption in the future is likely to be weak relative to today because that's what the interest rate structure is designed to achieve. Why, therefore, invest a great deal? Demand is weak. And it requires a big change to get out of this problem. And I'm not clear myself that any one country will find it easy to get out of this mess. Uh, we've got countries where debt levels are high and high relative to what we would expect to be when interest rates get back to a more normal level. There are other parts of the world where the opposite is true. Uh, look at Germany and China. Germany with a massive trade surplus is accumulating assets at a phenomenal rate. Whether it will ever get back the value for those assets, I think, remains to be seen. So I think that there are quite serious disequilibria, both within and between economies, which for very good economic reasons are, is depressing the level of current demand. And that simply lowering rates even further or having more monetary stimulus is unlikely to solve that problem. It was the right thing to do in the immediate aftermath of the downturn of 2008 to 9, when those were exactly circumstances when a Keynesian stimulus was appropriate. But we're now six over six years on from that. And I think I talked at the time about the paradox of policy, which was we were doing in the short run exactly the opposite of what we knew we needed to do in the long run, with countries like ourselves in the US needing to raise saving rates and countries like China and Germany needing to raise spending rates. But we've made no progress on that front. And until we do, and that's a much more a real equilibrium phenomenon rather than a monetary issue, I'm not sure that we will, in fact, get back to a buoyant path of expansion of aggregate demand. It sounds rather depressing. Well, I think it's... I, I mean, I think if you look at the last six or seven years, it has been pretty depressing. And you need a story to explain it. There are people, you know, use the phrase secular stagnation as if this constitutes an explanation. It isn't. And then when you ask them, what is secular stagnation? They say, well, the... Equilibrium, the natural real rate of interest is significantly negative. Well, that isn't an explanation. That's simply another way of saying in economic jargon that we are faced with a depressed level of aggregate demand. Well, some of the people who say there's secular stagnation suggest that the rate of innovation, yeah, they, we've, we've taken the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and you don't believe no, that. No, I don't. Uh, I don't think I believe that either. I mean, the idea that we have discovered everything there is to discover because we can't think of what we might discover in the future is a, a rather but mad if, idea. If we, if we knew what we were going to discover in the future, we'd have already discovered <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. So. 
Well, Karl Popper, another great LSE person, famously said, you cannot predict the future of knowledge. You said, by definition, impossible. There's a a concern that I think that some of us have, and I think it's sort of shared a, a bit in the BIS side, that the effect of lowering real interest rates as far as you can and undertaking QE is, as you say, to raise asset prices. We've already got a great deal of inequality. Doesn't this actually enhance inequality by raising the assets of those who already hold the assets, or almost by definition, a small proportion of the population? And isn't the problem uh, that the... um, the wage and earnings level of the mass of the population has been remarkably low over the last 15 years. Alan, I think I'll start with you. <laughs> and and why, why has labor done so badly relative to capital? Um, okay. This is... I, I feel this is part of the, the dilemma that Mervyn referred to in, in which, um, in trying to solve one, one problem, you may be creating another, and you, and you have to uh, choose how important the immediate problem you're facing is. And the lowering the interest rate, I believe, was the right thing to do in, in response uh, to the shocking, the shock fall in demand um, immediately at the time of the financial crisis. And then... The, what might have happened to wealth is um, a side effect of this. A, a, I won't say a price you're prepared to pay, but you recognise as one of the consequences of trying to make matters better for the, for the future. And uh, it is something that could, in principle, be reversed when, the, when the, that particular policy setting is no longer needed. So it's something that you put up with while you're trying to... Um, in, ensure that economic growth can, which is for everybody's benefit, can recover. Um, on, on your, you, you, you've moved on, though, to a very different question, which is to do with the, the, the longer-term um, historical uh, distribution, redistribution away from certain groups of employees and, and labour uh, as a whole um, towards capital. I, I mean, although this may sound unfair, I would claim that I'm not a central banker. And although um, I read the material that sets out to um, explain this, or even more so, read the reviews of the, um, of the books that set out to explain this, as, for example, uh, Mervyn's uh, review of Piketty's book, I, I'm not sure that I personally have anything to add to, to the what's out there in the general public. I regret I haven't read your review of... of Oh, it's essential. It's more important than the book. I'm I'm sure it's somewhere on the website. Maybe the audience hasn't read it either. Would you praise it for us, Mervyn? Two points, which are a lot shorter than the book, I can tell you that. One, the value of the book, in my view, is bringing together a massive amount of data and trying to understand, looking across countries, what has actually happened to the distribution of income and wealth over 200 years. 
Secondly, if you look at the numbers, the distribution of wealth is much more equally distributed today than it was in the 19th century. And three, the idea that this inequality, that the rate of return is bigger than the growth rate, explains why wealth is becoming more unequally distributed, is very superficial, because even the economic papers published in the 1960s and early 70s had models which were much more sophisticated because they took into account patterns of inheritance, taxation on inheritance, savings propensities of wealthy people. The idea that the, the, the simplest form of model, capitalists you know, save everything and workers consume everything, doesn't quite match up to the fact that the reason people don't like the top 1% is they're spending all their time spending money on champagne and yachts. Well, if they were doing all that lot, they wouldn't have all their rate of return left over to accumulate more capital. So I, I think that it's, it, it's too simple. The value in it is actually looking at the numbers. I think, to me, the most striking set of numbers are about income and not wealth. And it's true at every level. Uh, it's not just that the average employee has seen very slow growth in their real take-home pay, which I think has a great deal to do with the massive, massive increase in the number of employees producing tradable goods around the world in a market economy. Um, but it's also true within the top 1%. I mean, the concentration within the top 1% has become much greater. Uh, the example I gave in my review was about the prize money at Wimbledon. I'll leave you to check that in the review. But what's absolutely clear is that in many forms of endeavour, whether well, maybe even including academic life, for all I know, uh, that actually there's a bigger, there's a more unequal distribution of returns. It's the winner-takes-all mentality. Why has that? Why have we moved to a winner-takes-all type world? Well, I think globalization has a great deal to do with it. You take a simple example uh, in terms of sport and television. Everyone now wants to see the best player or the best team. They don't have to walk down the road to see their local team play, who frankly are no good, but they have no idea how poor they are mm. because there are no television mm. channels showing the great players around the world. Now, at any time of the day or night, you can see the very best. And they get, I mean, the, the, the distribution of earnings amongst the top 100 tennis players in the world is phenomenal. If you're number 100 tennis player in the world, you are a very, very good player. And if you couldn't recognize them, I could guarantee you, you could put the number one on court with the number 100, and you'd be hard to tell after half an hour which was number one and which was 100. But in terms of earnings, you'd see straight away someone who maybe earns 50,000 a year net of expenses versus someone who probably earns you know, many millions, many, many millions. So people don't go to watch Aston Villa because they can watch Barcelona. <laughs> it's not an athletic. <laughs> Actually, they do. They had a full tent stadium uh, on Saturday, Charles. <laughs> a bit of empirical evidence uh, always helps here. Because I, I was going to use part of, uh, this is not my, of the original um, ex, uh, idea, but one that's used, is the additional information we have about who is good and not so good. And this is particularly true in businesses um, uh, and it's much easier to pick out the winners. And this, it's always been easy to pick out the winners at Wimbledon, though so that, that, that why, why that should have changed so much is not completely it's the income. clear to me. A television income but dominates you, yeah, It has to be spread. Okay. Yeah, there's more. There's, okay. 
Now, let me turn to financial regulation. And I would contend that you can actually never do a cost-benefit analysis because the benefit depends on the probability of reducing the future crises, and you really don't know what that probability is, and you don't know what the extent of crisis that you would prevent. So if you can't do a cost-benefit analysis, how do you ever tell when regulation is too much or too little? Well, I think it's a very good question. I share your view that it's not worth doing a cost-benefit analysis. In fact, very few cost-benefit analyses are worth the paper they're written on because, again, they're trying to articulate num in numerical form things of which we have very little idea. It's better to own up to the uncertainty involved. So I think it, the question is what principles you would have for regulation. And that's as much about how you do regulation as what those rules are. The first one I would advocate is simplicity. I think it's not just financial regulation. I think it's also monetary policy. All the things I think that I would now describe as things that we hadn't done or were mistakes were done because people didn't sit back and look at the big picture. They were inclined to get bogged down in detail. And I don't think the detail ever revealed the big picture. You need to look at the detail to understand what the big picture may be, but you've got to draw out what that big picture is. A regulatory system that has thousands of pages in legislation to define the regulation is bound to be a system in the end where the people on the ground in the banks, the lawyers, the individuals at working level and the supervisory agencies end up doing deals because no one else involved can really understand every single piece of the legislation. So I keep keeping it simple strikes me as very important. And I think after our experience looking at banks, I described the challenges of trying to regulate liquidity. I think you've got to do something about it. But capital was the thing that made, you know, was the big picture. I mean, if you wanted to look at um, which banks were giving warning signs that they would get into trouble, simple leverage ratios were a much better predictor than risk-weighted capital ratios. And it's not because risk weights are conceptually faulty as such. Look, at taking account of risk sounds the right thing to do. But if you don't know how to take account of risk because you don't know what the risks are, attempting to take account of risk will give you a wrong model and a wrong solution. And I think doing something simple is much better than being very clever and doing the wrong thing. That's one principle. I think the other is robustness is very important. I think ideally one would go further. I think Nassim Taleb's idea of anti-fragile has got exactly the right connotations about it. That is, you want to give incentives to organizations to thrive on small shocks. You want them to sort of, ah, oh, something happened, we need to adapt to it. And that's somehow we need to think about how we, how we do that. And the third is just to focus on enforceability because, uh, you know, one of the things that's, going on in the debate now is that people come up with discussion of, say, Dodd-Frank and the Volcker rule. Well, it's very unclear to me this will ever be enforced, because, A, because it's too complex, but B, because the players themselves have a great deal of political power, and when it becomes a complex thing, the politicians will inevitably and completely understandably say, look, I don't understand what these guys are lobbying about. I can't make sense of Rule 56 
paragraph 3b, but they obviously care deeply about it. Can you please find a compromise? And the pressures will always be to find compromises about things that can't be explained and, and understood. Alan? I was, I was wondering, um, you, you said it was impossible, and I, I was, had asked myself, is it impossible or simply very difficult? But I, I think the answer is, it is impossible. I think that is the, the answer to this. You cannot do the, the calculations, and, and therefore, as, as Mervyn would say, it's not worth doing. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to dismiss cost-benefit analysis out of hand in the way, and in general, in the way he appears to do. I've been sitting here thinking about the regulations that require the London School of Economics to put these little signs on the, on the doorways with the, the, the white man on the green. That is a response uh, to regulation. What is the cost-benefit analysis of having those signs put there? Ideally, one would compare buildings which did have them with those that didn't have them and the fatality rate when there's a fire and all that sort of thing. I can, in principle, I can imagine doing that. I can see that there could be a way of asking whether it's a good idea to have those signs or not. I think in the case of financial regulation, I think I'm agreeing with Charles, that it's simply not possible and therefore certainly not worth doing. And it's rather like how do you respond to the difficulty of forecasting? The answer is by having robust procedures that, that you don't expect. You haven't defined in advance ever every eventuality um, but you have designed a system that is robust um, against shocks. Can I take you up, Mervyn, on... You talked about the advisability of allowing small shocks to occur that were anti-fragile. And I... It's a, it's a line that Bill White also takes. And I rather wonder whether you can actually work it. And for two reasons. First, if you are, say, in a central bank and something happens that drives you away from where you want to be, whether it's 2% inflation target or whatever, you can't just turn around and say, I'm not going to try and get back because it's a shock that will make the system <clears throat> more, more resilient. And the second thing is, what is a small shock? Because when the subprime first started, I mean, Governor Bernanke and others in the US thought it was a small shock. And accumulated via contagion and other feedback mechanisms really rather rapidly. So, I mean, can, can you consciously allow small shocks when the politicians and others will say they can remedy it, so surely they should? And secondly, that you have these feedback loop mechanisms and might make any small shock become a big shock while you're looking at it. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that policy be aimed at creating small shocks at all. No, I didn't know uh, that you can't. And, uh, and, what and, I and, meant was, you get, you, I think it's rather difficult to say you have a small exogenous shock that drives you away from where you want to be, and you just say, OK. I totally agree. My point was different. My point was, what we want to do if we can, and I have no particular prescription to achieve it, is to support and encourage the development of organizations that themselves will, they will experience shocks because we can't prevent all shocks. So shocks will come along. What we want are organizations that actually respond and thrive on them in the sense they learn from them themselves rather than rely on the regulator to say, this is how you should react. Now, it may be difficult to do, but I think that is the the, the kind of organization that we want to see work in a market economy. 
So you would, you would try to benefit institutions that did not require official help and somehow penalize in various ways institutions yeah. that did. And so, so finally for me, I'm, we're all economists of a sort, um, and you've seen the interaction of economics and policy. Do you think that <clears throat> economics, particularly macroeconomics, is currently in the kind of state that it should be to give the kind of advice to policymakers that it should be able to do? And how would... If, if you could reform economics... You are now sort of god or dictator or whatever. Mm. You're allowed to change the economic syllabus that we teach in universities. Would you, what changes, if any, would you make? Well, I think the students should choose the courses that they take. What I did at the bank was to ensure that the induction course we had had a significant component of financial history. That being, I thought, fundamental to understanding what was going on. Let me go back to the phrase models. The, the use of models in economics typically means constructing the very artificial view of the world by deliberately abstracting from a large number of things that we know are important, enable to be able to focus your mind and get your mind around one small problem. That means that when you read a journal in economics, one issue of that journal will typically have 10, 15, 20, maybe more models, each of which have been created by the authors to help you think more clearly about a problem. That, I think, is the right use of models. The trouble is that certainly a lot of people outside the economics profession think that the official sector, and particularly central banks, have to have a model. There's just one model, which is a description of the world. And if that model doesn't forecast certain things, then it's wrong and has to be replaced by a better model. I think this is a complete misuse of the word model. And the example I'll give in macroeconomics, and what I worry about with some of the macroeconomics literature, is that some of the models that were created to help us understand about timing consistency, about incentives, about the case for independence of central banks, a world in which output does literally follow along a simple path with a few random shocks on either side. There's only one good in the world, uh, and this is the nature of the model. That has been used to draw conclusions about policy, how monetary policy should respond to the sort of challenges we face now. Now, I don't think it's a criticism of the model to say that you know, the model is not relevant to these problems. But I think it is in large part. And I think, again, there has been a temptation in macroeconomics to think that there is a single model, you know, a variant of the new Keynesian model, which encapsulates all our wisdom and should be used to discuss every macroeconomic policy problem. And I think that is something that we should learn is not the case. And it's not helped by thinking, well, all we have to do is to get a little financial friction into the model, change a first-order condition, and that helps us then. That's the bit that was missing. If only we'd had that first-order friction in the model, then we'd have understood what was going to happen to the crisis. I don't think it's like that. But it, it would be better to have banks and financial frictions in our models than not at all. Well, it depends on the question you're asking. And if you end up with a model that's so complicated that you can't really understand what's going on and you simply have to 
do simulations for the you know, basis of arbitrary parameters. If you, if you simply can't comprehend what your model is coming up with, then you know, problems can arise out of that. Now, I've never forgotten the example of Bob Maid, professor of mathematics in Oxford, who was a government chief scientist. And he was asked to comment on the work done by the World Health Organization on the spread of AIDS and HIV in Africa. And they wanted to make predictions about how fast it would spread. And they had incredibly sophisticated models, and they had demographic models in great detail for each of the African countries, and they got computers to link them all together. And what Bob May pointed out was there was one parameter in this model that drove the entire results, and they made the wrong judgment about how to interpret it. And so what he was able to do was to say, forget the detail. Don't get bogged down in it. There's one key judgment about human behavior that you stop thinking about because you've been so busy making the interesting bits of the model, getting more data and so on. You've stopped questioning whether this assumption makes sense or not. And that's what we have to guard against more than anything else. Alan? Well, my, my thoughts this are very close indeed to Mervyn's, perhaps not surprisingly, and all three of us have taught economics and we've all, all three been involved in, in policy in one place or another, and you two have made major contributions to, the academic, to academic economics. And I was going to say, and I shall say, that when one does the policy job, the hardest part of it is dealing with the differences between the inevitably simplified models that we use to organise our thought, or the set of models that we use, because that's how we think about things, and the real world out there. That is the challenge, and I can perfectly see that in one way of helping this is, is through history. Sometimes the differences between the model and the world uh, don't matter very much. Sometimes they matter enormously. And uh, the, the challenge is to have this, the, if people are going to be involved in policymaking using economics, uh, they, how you have this ability to see the relationship um, between the two. Um, I've unashamedly been involved for a lot of my life in what Frank Hahn used to dismiss as plumbing, um, by which he meant really the whole range of applied economics or policy analysis or anything. But actually, we need plumbers, and you wouldn't call in a theoretical physicist to mend a leaking pipe. You, 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 you've got to be able to have these people who can recognize that this pipe is in this place and it's made of this metal, not of some abstractly defined metal. Civil engineers, I've always enjoyed talking to civil engineers because I see so much similarity between what they try to do and what we try to do. In their models, there's a variable called S, uh, which is saturation. And uh, most of their models say S equals 1, which means the soil is perfectly saturated. That's how their models work. It's full of water. Now, that's okay in the UK most of the time. It's not so good in the Sahara. And, and civil engineers don't go to the Sahara and say, well, S equals 1, and, and build, uh, construct um, uh, buildings and bridges and so on accordingly. And the challenge is how you get those skills. They can be taught, they can be helped, you can, universities can help. To me, a great deal of it is inevitably going to be on-the-job training, that if people are going off to the bank, after all, the people studying economics here are going to go off and do all sorts of things, and most of them will not do economic policy. But if they are going to use economic policy, and we can't necessarily expect the LSE or any other university to prepare everybody 
to go off and do economic policy. It's essential that they are confronted early on with this, with this great challenge, that they have to think, what is the world actually like out there? How do my models help me think about it? But what is it that's important um, in the real world that we have to take account of when we're constructing policies? I think the time has come to throw the question, the, throw it open to the audience to ask questions. Um, I see someone up there putting their hand up. Can you s- s- stand up and get, uh, give your name and where you come from? Uh, hi, I'm Ramin uh, from Department of Economics at SOAS. Do you see any connection between the rising income inequality in the last two, ca- two decades and the buildup of household debt in the U.S. and the U.K.? Alan, would you take that? <laughs> well, I, is there a connection? It, everything depends on everything else in economics, so everything is connected. Um, what I... See, as a story, uh, um, it's a Marxist story, so I'll tell this Marxist story to explain the first decade or so, decade of the uh, 21st century in the United States, um, was that a small part of the economy had enormous increases in income. These particularly accrued in the financial sector. And um, what about the rest of the um, American workforce who weren't benefiting um, from these very, very large salary increases. Answer, they believed for that first 10 years that they were nevertheless becoming extremely wealthy because the value of their houses uh, was rising. So there was a contrast between a reality, which was enormous increases in salaries, and what turned out to be a fantasy, um, which was an enormous increase in house values. That perceived increase in house prices of course, and the wealth apparently associated with them, encourage people to borrow, which is the borrowing side, and to continue consuming. So that was a sort of, you like, a trick that was paid for 10 years until it uh, all somewhat collapsed. Uh, There's a a question out there. Your name and what you do. Andrew Keckwick, taxpayer. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Lord King... Lord King talked about not putting more resources into forecasts and providing a more robust, residual, anti-fragile system. How is the assessment of resilience now better than when he said on the 8th of August 2007, three weeks before Northern Rock collapsed in the Bank of England inflation report, that our banking system is much more resilient than in the past? Well, the assessment of resilience is the responsibility of the bank. I'm no longer there. I'm sure that they've learned a great deal from the experience of the financial crisis, and I'm sure that they will assess for themselves where to look for the risks. All I would do is to point out that in, November, in 2006, the Bank of England did send to the FSA a paper pointing out that Northern Rock was an outlier in terms of its leverage. Tom. Could you, could you comment on the difference that it makes to central banks with respect to the assets that they acquire in order to uh, execute monetary policy, be they government bonds as opposed to lending to banks? And could you comment on the, uh, the, the influence that uh, responsibility for supervision makes to central banks? These are two very different questions. So Admittedly. Let me just comment on the first and see if others want to go with the, with, with the other on the first, my view is that monetary policy 
for a very long time has always had as one of its basic tools the ability to increase or decrease the money supply by engaging in buying or selling government bonds. And that what is now called quantitative easing, so-called unconventional monetary policy, is certainly not unconventional. What is unusual about it is the sheer scale. But back in the 1980s, as, as Charles will re- and Alan will remember, these operations were called overfunding and underfunding. So there's nothing terribly new about them. What I think has become new uh, in the crisis has been uh, the acquisition by central banks of assets which were not issued by the public sector and engage credit risk and therefore expose taxpayers to credit risk on on these purchases. And my feeling is that that is something which is better done by governments than by central banks. Now, you can see a a hint of these arguments come out in the debate in Europe where the European Court of Justice and the view of uh, their senior officials, though not yet a ruling by the court, is that it's important to distinguish between what they call economic policy and monetary policy. Monetary policy is buying and selling government bonds, and that's why the idea that sovereign bond purchases by the ECB could in any sense be regarded as ultra-vires, I think, makes no sense. But buying other assets, particularly focusing on buying bonds only of one or two governments in trouble because their credit spreads were high, is much closer to economic policy. And that is the debate which has come out of the deliberations not only of the German Constitutional Court but of the European Court of Justice. So I I don't think we should worry too much about the idea that central banks are buying assets. This is a traditional tool of monetary policy. What we should worry much more about is is the consequences of the scale of it and where real interest rates are today. But let me ask Alan if he wants to come in on it. No, um, I I agree completely with that uh, answer. Do you you want to go on to the supervision part of the question? If you want. Well... This is not something on which I'm an expert, as, but I'm aware, of course, that the argument about whether or not the central bank should supervise the banks is an open question. It may not be regarded as an open question now, but it was originally and always regarded as an open question because of the risks that can arise um, when the central bank is both the monetary authority and the, and the supervisor. And I've always assumed that it was the balance of those arguments that led the Labour government in 1997 to to take banking supervision away from the Bank of England and put it into the Financial Services Authority. I don't know. It's um, going back again, and I'm not sure what one concludes from this. One one observes that the successive governments have changed their mind about this issue, but it's never seemed to me a completely open and closed issue that it's... We never got told. Um, And I I, I remember... uh, he, that discussion. Yes. We never got told what the arguments were that led the government to take the banking supervision away from the central bank. And presumably, when the 20 years rule comes round <laughs> in about two or three years' time, we will discover. But and it was it was one of the cases where policy was made without any transparency mm-hmm. and without any public discussion whatsoever. Unlike central bank independence, which was huge amount of discussion. However, well, in 20 more... years' time, my name will not appear in any of the discussions <laughs> of the removal of uh, banking supervision from the bank. 
We've got a question over here. Hi, my name's Abby. I work at JP Morgan. Um, wanting to ask, what realisations of moral hazard did you observe from quantitative easing during your time of, at the Bank of England that could be expected um, if QE does go in place from the ECB this Thursday? Well, I think, let me define moral hazard carefully first. All moral hazard means is that when the government or central bank takes an action, the private sector changes its behaviour in response to it. And if you're going to design a public sector intervention, it does make a lot of sense to think about how the private sector might respond to it. And that is what moral hazard means, and it's true for every conceivable public sector intervention. What tax rate do we set? You take into account what effect that will have on private sector behaviour. I think in terms of quantitative easing, uh, it's, it's very much in line with the traditional analysis of monetary policy. What we were doing was creating a lot of base money, as Charles said, but the stock abroad money did not increase by very much, but at least it stopped falling. I mean, broad money was actually falling. And if that had continued to fall and fallen by a substantial amount, then we would have had a very deep depression. But the aim, and when I spoke on television about it, the aim was to ensure that the amount of money in the economy, broad money, grew at a modest rate. And we had to do an awful lot on base money because base money is a small percentage of total broad money in order to get broad money to rise. The reason broad money was falling was that the banking system was cutting back on its lending and not making new loans. And every time a loan was uh, called in or not extended, then deposits were cut. Broad money was actually falling. Uh, that was something which it was very important to prevent. Uh, so we increased the money supply. What I found most extraordinary about it was that explaining that whereas most governors of the Bank of England had their task in the post-war period of trying to stop the amount of money in the economy from growing too quickly to generate inflation, what we were now doing was to try and stop it from falling, and so it would grow at a modest rate. Most sections of the British public understood that, except for professional economists, hmm. because they didn't like any explanation in terms of the word money. And it is possible to talk about monetary policy, if you're very clever, without using the word money. But I'm not quite sure why you'd want to. Mm. Uh, but there seems to be this sort of resistance to doing mm. it. So people talked incessantly about you know, credit easing. And we were trying to do little tricks and things on particular markets in the credit sphere. I think that was being too clever by half. What we that were doing what, that, was that you, you're not referring to your colleague across the ocean certainly not there were a whole <laughs> whole number of people who got very excited about all these uh, interventions in credit markets what we were trying to do was to ensure that unlike a number of countries in the euro area our money broad money supply instead of falling significantly would actually start to rise again there's a question over there um, Tasby Shah from Warwick University um, I was just wondering, at what level does deflation begin to be a worry in a developed country for central banks? And in UK especially, um, what, what kind of tools are there left, uh, given that the interest rates are so low right now? Well, uh, OK, I'll start. Um, and whether I can give an ex-ante answer to this, we know the symptoms, as I was saying in, in reply to an earlier question, that deflation is a problem if it's causing uh, demand to fall still more sharply. 
because people are postponing purchases. Right? So we have a, a fall in aggregate demand. Um, at what rate of falling prices that occurs, um, I, I don't know the answer to that, and, and maybe either Charles or Mervyn um, does know the answer 1.63. That's right. I, I was hoping there would be an answer. I, how much I, I, I must admit in the UK context I do not worry about this there are a large range of products whose prices fall and have, have fallen year after year computers are an ex obvious example quality adjusted televisions ditto but this doesn't stop people buying these things everybody knows that television sets are going to be cheaper in a year's time but they continue uh, to buy them so at what point it really does uh, become a serious um, Problem. It will create a serious problem of demand because uh, prices are falling. I don't think it's when inflation is big, largely because of oil price falls half a percent, uh, for example. But uh, 1.63 is, uh, is, is Charles's answer. I, I don't think we should define the problem as no. one of deflation. It is a, there's a serious problem of weakness in demand. Yes. And I think we should worry about that. But the question I'll put back to you is, we've had the biggest monetary stimulus the world must have ever seen, and we still have not solved the problem of weak demand. Mm. So the idea that monetary stimulus, after six years, just a little bit more mm. is the answer, doesn't seem to me... Now, that's not to say the right thing to do is just to put up interest rates today. That's where I think I'd part company from some of the BIS point of view. But it, it's to suggest that the problem requires a much wider set of responses than merely ones in the monetary field. But in the 19th century, we saw periods when there was deflation overall. That didn't stop a growing economy. I think we need to look... That the, the real problem, in a way, is that after the great success of monetary policy in the 1990s and early 2000s, everyone felt that every aspect of economic behaviour, certainly at the macroeconomic level, must therefore be the results of central bank action, and instead of looking at the real equilibrium in the economy. And I think it's time now to lift one's eyes above the horizon uh, and actually start to look at a wider range of economic factors that are determining the real path of output and demand, and it, look at those to see why demand is so weak. I'm going to take one last question. Uh, Arlen Rama, Achieving uh, School at City University. First of all, thank you very much for this knowledgeable conversation on central banking. I used to work in the Bank of Albania. And uh, my question is related to, uh, to the first uh, public uh, uh, speech uh, in a public event of the Deputy Governor of, uh, of the Bank of England, uh, Mrs. Minur Shafik. She was discussing about uh, a new regulation implemented by the Bank of England, which is going to be within... 10 months implemented, but which is, which is aimed to be solving once and at least uh, within a, a long-term period the, the moral hazard in the, in the banking industry. How, how, uh, uh, how kind of genuine you think that this kind of short-time implementing is going to solve this long-term or historic issue in, uh, in banking I industry? Well, I'm no longer at the Bank of England. I'm merely retired, so I'm not in a position to uh, comment on any of that. I think um, you know, I'm very happy to sit back and let the Bank of England do its job. I think we're, we're all getting to an age up here where we're all prepared to sit back and let somebody else do the job. 
But um, thank my guests very much indeed for what has been, I hope, the most interesting evening.